Okay, welcome back to the AEC Hive podcast. I'm Ralph Montague, a director at ArcDocs and co-founder of AEC Hive, where we're talking about innovation in architecture, engineering, and construction. Uh, I'm joined by my co-founder, John Egan. John, do you want to say hi to everybody? Hi, everyone. I'm John Egan from BIM Launcher here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I'm looking forward to getting into it. Okay, we're very excited today by two gentlemen where we're going to be talking about ideas and innovation and the value of ideas. I'm really pleased to have with us Andrew Abernethy and Doug Elliott. You guys are really welcome to the AC Hive podcast. Maybe you could introduce yourselves and just tell our listeners a little bit about what you're doing and the companies you work for, and then we can go further and talk about the value of ideas. Hi, Ralph. This is Andrew. Uh, we're really happy to be here on your podcast, and thank you so much for extending the invitation. I'm a recovering architect, you might say. I spent over 40 years in practice off and on, and uh, similar to what John's experience is, I spent close to 20 years in the IT world and found that to be an interesting intersection. And the last latter part of my practice, I really focused on how those two come together. And today, I'm involved with a foundation that we created called the 867 Foundation, which is specifically formed to help people understand what ideas they have and what the value of those ideas are. And on our podcast called Ideas to Assets, my co-host is Doug Elliott. Hello, everyone. John, Ralph, great to meet you for the first time. A pleasure being on your podcast. By way of background, Andrew's a recovering architect. I'm a recovering venture capitalist, uh, small business entrepreneurship, ran a company and took it public. What we do at Carthage is we have developed a method in a transaction base for being able to monetize creative assets. And we've specialized in doing that with small businesses because there is so much creative capital that goes unlooked for and unoptimized and uninvested in that it just makes a wonderful opportunity. And Ideas to Assets, we talk about some of that uh, in much greater detail. But again, it's a pleasure to be on the AEC Hive podcast, and hopefully some of what we have will be useful to your audience as well. Fantastic. And of course, yeah, I suppose the audience for AC Hive is a community of innovators in architecture, engineering, and construction. And typically, it's people who are looking of new ways of doing things and uh, interested in exploring ideas. And so maybe we could start with this idea that ideas have value, because I think you know a lot of people might think that you're doing your job and you have great ideas, but they, they don't have value in themselves. Uh, you have to turn those ideas into products or services in order to generate value. So what, what would you guys say? Does, do the ideas themselves have value outside of the work that people do? I'll start with it, and I know Doug has a specific answer for it, but... Really, first, it's understanding how to identify ideas for what they are. And as a practitioner in the design space, you're absolutely right, Ralph. Most of the time, we're, we deal so much with ideas as designers, it's our stock in trade. And it's really hard to differentiate which ideas are directly applied to a design problem that we have that 
specifically design the requirements of the engagement that we are working on and those other ideas which are the core drivers of the design practice. And what we're focused on now are the latter rather than the former, because the latter is where the repeatability for innovation happens. Do you, you want to come in there, Doug? Uh, absolutely. So what we did in our business was come to the realization that ideas that that are persistently useful are kind of like a building. They're around for a while. The problem with ideas that have persistent usefulness is that they, they, they don't quite fall into a, a deed description or a physical object. So what we learned to do and what we developed over the last eight years in Carthage Intellectual Capital Management is an actual methodology for us to identify and value ideas as, as really persistently useful things, and then to be able to actually construct a financial transaction around them for capitalizing those ideas as if they were buildings so that companies with good ones can raise capital from them to do the next things that will add value to the business. And that's what we've been doing for eight years, and it's been highly successful. And although it seems that really large companies are the places you go because they're the ones that do a lot of formal R&D, Actually, the creative process is really limited only to a single human brain and is remarkable what a human brain can come up with, even in small firms. And I suppose um, a lot of people listening might be thinking, you know, where does the idea start? And some people say there's no new ideas. You're always developing on previous ideas. We've noticed in some of the community, we you have these kind of hackathons where people come together and they're mixing up ideas. So whose idea was it in the first place? You know, so I think it raises some interesting questions about, as you were saying, uh, formalizing or uh, capitalizing on that idea. If, you, if you're not really sure where it started, where it came from and who developed it and yeah, is that a challenge? Um, yeah, <laughs> it is. I'm glad you mentioned that because it's a specific issue that we've seen in the collaborative space. AEC is no different than any of the other industries in that everyone is beginning to really understand and use collaboration, whether they're using it Effectively is another question, but they are using it more pervasively today than probably what they've ever used it before. The business model structure of AEC is collaborative or should be by nature, but structurally from a contractual point of view and a legal point of view, there are certain constraints put on the AEC industry for liability and financial constraints, which we found in our practice, I say we, our, I mean the practice, the last practices I was in from 2000 to 2011, we knew we had to find ways to break those restrictions if we were going to be able to make any significant changes or strides in innovation because everything that we were doing, which we thought was innovative, was only incremental to a small degree. 
we weren't doing anything that was having any significant impact. And so we understood that our ideas had to be leveraged in such a way that they would affect the core of the business model that we were operating in. And when I say the business model, I mean the the industry-wide business model, the expectation, the best practice. And we found that many of those supposed best practices were actually inhibiting our ability to move forward with some innovation that we wanted to do. We had to find ways around that. I mean, John, you might come in here because John is probably a good example. You're a startup, you're developing a business, so you've obviously had an idea, you're pursuing that idea. What sort of questions do you have as a startup and a, a person who is actively innovating in the AEC sector? One of the main questions that I would ask around um, STEM is how much effort and work in advance of a contract or doing actual business in terms of the actually getting the contract, delivering, delivering the work and getting paid. How much of that period where you have to I suppose, court the customer on the pretense that you're a startup and you would benefit from the customer's business more than perhaps they would benefit from your service. I mean, that's kind of, from from an innovator's, well, from my perspective, it always feels like that when you're trying to get off the ground. It's almost like, you know, you're... You're delighted to be in the presence of a customer that would be almost willing to pay for your service. And I found as as a startup, you know, you're largely developing the product as it goes, you know, so you're kind of taking a contract and you're promising what you will deliver in that contract ahead of actually having the the actual service or the, the thing that the customer is paying for. And, I mean, it's, it's like psychological warfare in a way for for me well, as a CEO of a startup because how much is too much or will promise to deliver more so you never know how long to kind of, how long to pretty much indebting yourself to the company in favor of getting your idea off the ground. And I suppose my question would be is, what's your thinking around getting your idea off the ground and how much how much pain is too much? So, John, uh, you founded a new business because I suspect you saw an unmet need that you could serve. And, wasn't, and by it not being served... It, uh, it represent an opportunity that was languishing. Is that a fair statement? Yes. I mean, this is my third business. That when I started this current business, it wasn't. It, I didn't have the vision that I did do now. And I started this three years ago. My first, my first idea. I mean, I pivoted pretty hard. And I mean, I like really. I just have. I don't know whether persistence would be the the main and then I suppose a, a very futuristic vision in terms of 
where the industry should go or uh, I don't, it's an in, innate sense that's a that's how I would describe it right and that's how it is for lots and lots of innovators even in highly technical spaces at least this is my experience um, in, in, in in actually coming up with financial transactions so you know the first thing that we suggest, in what 867 Foundation does is do you have a list of those unique things that you do? And, and by the way, um, do this with yourself and consider seriously before you talk to other people of doing a secrecy agreement on any of the things that might be highly unique to you and might have persistent value, not just in talking to the next client, but all of the clients you may talk to. Have you had a chance to do that in your own business model this time? Yes. I'm, I mean, we, we do have a product, so we provide uh, integration services through our technology platform for leading project management solutions. And we are one of the only organizations, who, well, I don't want to say, uh, let's say a handful of organizations that I'm aware of that are actively supporting the exchange of information between project management solutions. So we do have partnerships with leading project or leading software vendors, and we do have we do have technology that is both compatible with existing open standards. Um, around information exchange, and we are playing a role in the leadership of development of future open standards for the exchange of information. So, yeah, we do have we we do understand our position quite well, I would say. And also so you're in yeah. This is Doug again. So you're in the bridge business. You build bridges. Um, and have a unique yeah. form of bridge that connects various disparate resources that make better products and services within the AEC marketplace. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. All right. So then, if you if you get to that point, you could begin to ask yourself another question. Well, what is it we are doing? That is your business doing. It is absolutely unique, and that's a that's a sit down and think it through with yourself and any other um, of, of your uh, fellow entrepreneurial employees to do that. That list of what those things are is the start of your, if you will, intangible asset architecture, and it's just as valuable, or should be, or can be just as valuable as any physical asset you buy, like computers like outside software, like a building you may do your business in. But until you start to come up with a list of what they are, until they start to have an identity that's unique to you, you're kind of just throwing them in with everything else you do. And, oh, by the way, here's all our our knowledge and, and really proprietary useful stuff, but we're not really distinguishing it. Our suggestion is you should distinguish it because if you do, it becomes an asset base that's unique that reminds you of what you do that it's unique and also can in financial parlance, whether it's in transactions you do with your clients or whether uh, ways you might capitalize yourself with your internal business finances, 
very important. It opens up an entirely new class of assets that you're working with. And you know how it is. When people think they have a tool, they use it. And when they think in a tool-based opportunity, they see things that they can do with it. So it begins to become a self-catalyzing process of understanding what your innovation is, what it does, and why you need to have a list of them at the get-go as much as you can. And if you add to it, even better. And that's really interesting because I think there's a lot of people that would be listening to this podcast who are, you know, at various stages of innovation or pursuing ideas. And I think what you're saying there, Doug, is, you know, don't, uh, don't throw the idea away and just bundle it into a service. Try and separate out what is really a worthwhile idea to, that would, that would almost have an identity or value of its own. You know, and I'm sure there's, a lot of people who have, haven't actually thought of it that way. They've just thought, well, the idea is just something I need to, to pursue and turn it into a product or a service. Um, well, I want to toss this over to Andrew <laughs> because that is exactly what the 867 Foundation is about yeah. as part of it, 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 its its vital core mission, is making educate, sure it's just that. Uh, Andrew, maybe, maybe you should explain more on that. It was a long and winding, torturous road, John, that I have traveled. I started this road when I left architecture for the first time to work for McDonnell Douglas AEC, a division that was in the old McDonnell Douglas company before Boeing bought it. And specifically, we were working with products and services to help automate the AEC industry. And this was back when we were still working on many computers, you know, digital VACs and Prime 900 series machines, when you had to have a fair amount of cash in your pocket to just play the game. But what was interesting about that is I began to see a glimpse of what automation could do, and I'm still telling the same story 40-odd years later. So your question about persistence is, if it's an idea that works at the structural foundations of an industry and you know and others corroborate your intuitive insight, then stay at it. It may take a couple of decades. <laughs> and Ralph and I Ralph and I are evidence that that's true, right, Ralph? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, it's taken a while yet, and we're still not there. And and for some of us, we think we've hardly scratched the surface. And to, in many respects, back to John's original question, that's why we formed the 867 Foundation, because we saw some of those underlying structural issues in business knowledge around intangible assets just wasn't there. Nobody gets that education in their school. Um, Ralph, when you went to school, I know that's a dim memory. It's certainly dim for me. Um, do you remember anyone, your professors or anybody in your school that talked about intangible assets and what they no. meant to practice? Did they talk about the, any of those kinds of subjects? Absolutely not. No. Yeah. And, we hardly, and, got, we hardly I, got any business, business uh, education. In, in, yeah, we in hardly got any business education at all. That's right. It was so focused on the design process, right? I mean, and that's a great foundation. The design process has helped me so many ways, so laterally, 
in so many ways. And I use it. I mean, that's how my world, my thinking world works now. It's just second nature. It's primary nature to me now. But that's not the point. The point is there's some other things in the world legally and in the world of business that runs those engines. And the engines in today's economies are ideas. The world or uh, WIPO, the World International uh, or Intellectual Property Organization, which is a part of the UN, did a study in uh, 2015 and tw- updated it in 2017, which basically says over 80% of the gross domestic product that's created internationally <clears throat> within economies is produced not on hard capital assets, but on ideas. Think about that for a minute. Ideas are what drive our economies, not factory floors, not machines, not not computers. All those things are important, don't get me wrong. But it's the ideas that people use to leverage those hard assets that create the real value in these organizations. So is the foundation trying to educate people? Is that the primary? Our primary focus focus is to first educate people on what ideas really are, how they work as intellectual assets in a business, how they create the real value in the business. And what better business to think about that than the design professions. They're raw idea professions, aren't they? I mean, you're, you're chock-a-block with them. <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> like they're laying all over the ground and you're walking on them. It's, it, it's insane how much ideation gets created in the design professions, architecture, engineering, construction specifically, for the you know, for you folks in AEC Hive, but it's also the rest of the supply chain that that feeds all that. The guys making hardware and the guys making equipment and the guys doing things like, you know, new flooring systems, all of that stuff is all tied together. And what we are trying to do is say those core ideas that drive the business, we have a structural business problem in that our accountants don't like us to try to monetize our ideas on our balance sheets because when we do there are certain tax implications which they want us to avoid and that's all fine and good but the reality is what that does to us when we think about our businesses is we discount those things which are really the core value drivers of our business it, it, it points out why, if you ever look at publicly traded companies, and if you look at what the stock shares times the stock price says about the value, and then you add up what's actually their sum of assets and liabilities, you find that there's 80% of the value in many of these companies that doesn't consist of anything based on the assets that you put down. And to Andrew's point, what doesn't get put down for a number of reasons, uh, tax being one of them, but also because accountants just don't know how to transactionally put an idea on a balance sheet when it's made. They don't know yeah. how. And 
the way to do that is to start a process that lists what they are and then provides an opportunity to actually do a piece of business around this. Unfortunately, right. uh, I, I'm also I'm also a lawyer. I, I think you would call it a a solicitor. Um, and so we've taken into account that all things done in business at their elemental level do come to a contract. You do them all the time, John, when you finally engage clients. But contracts can be also the pieces and parts that go into those larger contracts for services. And once you begin to see that your creative assets are very much the same in that regard, then you can start to itemize and keep track of them. And more right. importantly then when it does become a question of money of value, whether it's explaining to a customer what they're getting for value, you can itemize that and show the creative assets that are doing that work. You can talk to investors, which we as Carthage do, to say, here's that property that has real value in our business because this is how it helps clients. This is how it makes value. And it's unique to us. Now, that uniqueness, I'm going to say, and, and Andrew, you can pop in, a lot of people say, well, yeah, that's great if you're a big company doing R&D. Understand that. But it's also, does everything have to be a big R&D type exercise that has to become a patent or a trademark or a copyright and trademarks and marketing stuff? And the answer is no. Most of the great ideas that drive business are not any of those things. They are trade yep. secrets. Right, right, right. They're trade secrets. And people diminish the value of their own trade secrets before they should. They're humble in advance of their of what I say is their true value. And it's all right to be humble, but you should also be proud of the unique things you bring. One of the ways to do that is to make sure you itemize them. And if you right. start doing that as a business, it I, I will tell you right now, we've done investing in them when people see it that way. We've never had any piece of business we transacted for money around ideas fail, ever. So, so once you know, this, you, you know. This, this, what Doug is talking about, is the second core mission of the foundation. And that is to raise the – first, to raise the awareness of the value of ideas, and secondly, to get them to the point where they actually create financial transactions. And that's what we are, that is why Doug and I are working together, because he helps us meet that second foundational mission. Once we get people educated and they understand what the idea is, that the idea has value, and some of them are more equal than others, they have more value than others do, those are the ones we really want to focus on. Yeah. And in the, in the same way you said, um, yeah, the accountants don't know how to deal with this. Is, is it fair to say that, in general, the the law society does not know how to deal with this either? Yeah. They don't. You're, you're absolutely right. They don't. Well, and I guess we're we're the. I hope we're not Don Quixote's tilting at the <laughs> windmill. We don't think we are, but we realize we're those pioneers out on the, and you know, here in the western states, there was something called the Oregon Trail. It was the northern trail that the pioneers took across the Rocky Mountains to get to the Pacific Coast, and it was an arduous <laughs> experience, to say the least. There were a lot of 
people who died on that trail to get from one place to the other. We hope we're not part of the casualties, but by the same token, we're trying to push the idea mm -hmm. forward that ideas are the core of what business is. And when you put specific value and can understand how to attribute that value to those ideas, you create a new value base for your company. And I know that's true because our last architectural firm, we actually did this. We didn't know that we had done it when we did it. But I look back now in hindsight and see exactly what we did, frankly, from an intuitive basis, because our backs were up against the wall. We had to do something. And mm -hmm. necessity is the mother of invention often, right? <laughs> and, and we just did it. We didn't know any better. We just kind of took our design methodology and said, this is how we think this thing ought to look like and we pushed forward with it and by golly it worked he did that by doing exactly what doug is talking about we differentiated our services by explicitly calling out how our ideas created value for our owners and for our contractor partners and for our supplier partners, the value was a little different for each of those constituent stakeholders, right? But you first got to sell the owner because they're paying the bill. And the value proposition was for the owner was higher quality, less time, lower cost. Break the iron triangle. We figured out how to break it and to do it consistently over and over again. And we got that first traction by pitching somebody saying, well, if you think this would work, let's try this. And they were adventurous enough to say yes. And, you know, that was the first time. And once we did it the first time, we said, oh, well, we need to make these little improvements and tweaks. And if we do this and that, the, you know, it'll actually work better. And so we started doing it over and over, and eventually we just came to a business decision that this is the only way we want to do business. And we quit doing competitive bidding projects. We just quit doing them because we saw that there was too much waste and there's, you know, it just didn't work. It created too much risk. We were all about reducing risk and increasing profit. Well, I hope so your, your trade secret in that example is the process in which you yes. the way in which you did things. And yes. that, that was the intent, the, the intangible asset that you had precisely. created. Precisely. Yeah. But yeah. we never, we seldom ever told everybody, anybody, everything about that. We would tell them parts and pieces of it enough. So they understood what was going on, but not necessarily how it was going on. That's called, in the parlance of trade secrets, it's called know-how. If we told them about the know-how, they signed a license to use that bound them to the secrecy of that idea. And we did that and didn't realize what we were doing at the time. But those are the essential components that have to be in place, um, both from a business point of view and legally, as Doug would tell you as a solicitor, you know, those are the basics that you have to cover. And fortunately, we had 
good enough legal advice at time at the time to cover the basics that we needed to be able to protect ourselves. But guys, honestly, we didn't know what we were doing when we did this. We had no freaking idea what we were doing. And it's but, in, only, but in the end, that that had enough value that you could sell it on or raise yeah. capital against it. Or, yeah. I mean, we raised uh, the way we rose capital was we just sold. <laughs> it was a great competitive advantage in the marketplace, and so it made it easier for us to sell. You guys are starting a podcast together yourselves to kind of push these ideas forward. Um, do you want to talk yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, the Ideas to Assets podcast. That I that title came from a piece of work that I wrote over two years ago entitled Ideas to Assets, which goes into a lot of what we've just been talking about, but trying to raise awareness that ideas are your best assets. That's the tagline for the, for the podcast, Ideas Are Your Best Assets. And uh, I met Doug at a conference on intellectual assets at an international group called the Licensing Executive Society. They had a conference in Phoenix. I live in Arizona, so it was easy for me to go. And Doug and I met at that conference, and we found that there was a lot of synergy between what we were both trying to do. And so one thing has led to another, and we've decided to do a podcast, and we're having a blast putting it together. We'll be launching it here before the end of the year, and we'd love to have your folks um, listen in on that. We'll we'll be glad to invite you to join that launch. Oh, that's fantastic. And I think when we spoke previously, I mean, just the, the kind of proof of the pudding of what you're saying is that you, you mentioned that there's investors out there that will invest in ideas, which is you know, sounds like a crazy idea. And, and, <laughs> and, 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 I just, uh, and I just another and one this week. proof that that works, and he's been – Here's what's remarkable, guys. He's been doing this for about seven years, and he's not lost any money. Not one pound, farthing, or shilling has he lost. Not one euro has he lost doing this. Mm. As opposed to venture capital, which has a failure rate of 75%. I mean, that's, that's incredible. And I think that's really encouraging for people in the AC sector who are looking to pursue ideas and because it can, as John said, it can seem like a, a hard road to, to bring an idea forward into a product or service if you think that the value is only in the, the tangible asset mm-hmm. that you create. But you know, it, it suddenly it becomes a lot more interesting and exciting if you think um, that there's also value in the intangible ideas. Yeah. Right. I don't and know, do you feel inspired, John? <laughs> yeah, certainly. Yeah, well, the other thing was, you know, uh, we've talked about R&D a little bit, and I want Doug to talk about the difference so folks can understand the real difference in the two basic efforts in R&D. One's called applied research, and the other one's called uh, basic research. And Doug is also a scientist. He's one of these great polymath guys that's got his finger in all kinds of stuff. And he's just 
I'm so fortunate to have him as a co-host. I just can't express how happy I am to have him as a co-host because we have such rich conversations. But Doug, would you would you let their group in a little bit on the difference in applied versus basic research and what that means to do either one of those? Well, I'll certainly give it a give it a shot. Yeah, I was a I was a, a chemical engineer before. I did anything. And I remember I, I, I had a problem with heat pumps. You guys know about heat pumps, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, we needed to build an industrial one for a, a, a process that used a, a particular chemical solvent that my company made. And, and we had just one small problem is we couldn't figure out how to start a heat pump and shut it off without either getting it started in the first place or killing everybody with the vapors when the... Uh, refrigeration side of it went down and we were no longer capturing these vapors we were making for a, an active metal treatment process. That was a, uh, a problem that came up with a client. It turns out that solving that problem uh, hadn't been obvious. And um, by tinkering around in our lab and trying a few things, we came up with an invention on how you could start and shut down a heat pump. And I offer that not because it's a brilliant idea. It, it was pretty slick. It worked, and I'm proud of the idea. But more importantly, it became an idea that basically would allow a lot of businesses that were opening up in the southern half of the United States to use our product that they could not use because the temperatures were too high. And yet air conditioning is expensive, but if you can recycle the heat, and you know all about that in the architectural field. So my point is, that was a kind of research that we would call applied research. There was a problem that we came up with a solution for. And that solution turned out to be a solution that could work for more than one client. Mm. Applied research essentially operates that way. It looks at the marketplace and figures out its needs. And if they're unsolved because of a technical issue and you do work on it and you come up with a technical solution, that's applied research. Now, the other thing is is about what you do within your core expertise, where you're seeking out new products that may be useful to a marketplace, but don't exist in a form that the marketplace can even tell you about them. That's basic research. Basic research basically is a structural part of your business. Now, and that's great. That's how new drugs get discovered. That's how uh, looking at fundamental properties of material get discovered. That's probably what architects and engineers are doing every day on projects. They're looking at materials, how materials will come together, and they probably don't think of it as research. They just think of it as doing their job. They do. And, and, and while, while an architectural firm might not come up with a brand new material, they have the ability and foresight to look at materials and say, I wonder why we don't use this material to do this. It has all these interesting properties, whether they're aesthetic properties or structural properties or functional properties. And those things can get incorporated, and that's a form of applied research that actually even a small firm can do. don't necessarily recommend getting into basic research because to make that commitment is an organizational one. And when you hear about investments by venture capitalists, oftentimes that's one of the things they're looking for in technical fields. But I actually have a problem I was going to say, and I don't know if this fits in the architectural field or not, but I don't know if you have heard, Subway, the giant uh, sandwich franchise, has a real problem in Ireland. They're not making sandwiches because they're not actually making bread. 
under their recipes because they have too much sugar in them. And I was wondering, and, and because we're in this together, is that an architectural problem? Do they have to start redesigning subways in Ireland to be able to allow the dough to rise faster without sugar? And if so, is that an opportunity you guys could solve? <laughs> Never thought of that as an architectural problem, but yeah, that sounds... Well, it's, it's, it's a big deal because, because if you, you, you're selling franchises in it, right? And if you, if you don't have legal bread, that's going to be a problem. Um, so I don't know if that's something, but, and I say that that's facetious, but it's not. It would be worth a great deal of money to Subway to actually be able to solve that. And if it's the way they organize that would, you know, their, their building space, that would be huge. It would be worth several million euros, I suspect. Yeah, just making some notes here. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, well, I'm saying, and to your audience out there, you know, um, this problem I don't think is going away soon because it's 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 a fundamental sort of food making. But my point is also here: don't ever think that there is some innovation that is too trivial because it's dealing with something that, in one way, has been around for five thousand years. We've been making bread. The opportunity to do something better to overcome a particular problem is what innovation is about. It's what creativity is about. If you start building it into your awareness of that's part of what you do anyway, not that you have a big R&D organization. Right, right. Then then, then you really, you are, I would say, 75% to where you can start to see how to use those creative assets you do and work with all the time to better your own business, to make the case for your business with clients, and to actually build a set of assets that can be counted because oftentimes they take forms of contracts. And one thing accountants can do, they can count contracts. Right. (laughs) I can can attest, yes, they're very good at doing that, Doug. (laughs) They are. Very good. But don't forget, the most important takeaway is the Subway bread. How do they Mm. make bread without adding sugar? And still have a good Subway sandwich. I think it's, a, it's, it's an urgent problem, and it may be an architectural solution waiting to be found there. Yeah. Well, having done uh, a lot of restaurant work, Doug might be onto something there. <laughs> so all you guys out there doing uh, chain restaurant work, uh, pay attention. You might have a commission to work on there if you can crack that problem. But the, the other thing that that I think was is a takeaway from what Doug was talking about is most of us in the design profession are working in the applied research side of things. And I know I've been in two situations where we got, we had a bad case of shiny object syndrome with basic research. <laughs> we went down that rabbit hole, and it was a disaster. And these are all small firms I'm working with. We're not talking about huge, you know, multi-office firms that have hundreds or even thousands of people in them. We're talking about small practitioner firms under 20 people in nearly every case. That applied research takes so much resource, time, people, focus to do this it's it's really hard for a design firm to do that applied research great that that's a that's that's your sweet spot but here's the important thing i would really love for everybody to take away from this how you do that 
and how you deliver your end product that differentiates you from all of your peers, that's your trade secret. That's your secret sauce. That's your Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know, secret recipe. recipe. You know, 14 herbs and spices. That's your 14 herbs and spices, guys. That's what you have to learn how to identify. And it takes a certain discipline to do it. But you know what? Being designers, you already know the process for doing that. You do it all the time for everybody else. So drink a little of your own Kool-Aid and do it for yourself. Fantastic. Well, I think we could probably talk for hours, but uh, we, we've, we've reached we've reached the hour. <laughs> and, reached um, the it's it's been a really eye-opening discussion. I think uh, certainly for me, I'm sure John, um, you feel the same, and and for our listeners, I think it's we we re- really look forward to when your podcasts come out. Please let us know so we can help uh, promote them. And it's, it's fantastic information you guys are, are sharing and the way you're educating the the community. So maybe you could wrap it up, Doug. Any final words of encouragement, words of wisdom? I guess I would come back to the theme of our, of our podcast, Ideas to Assets. Your ideas are assets as much as any other physical object is an asset in business and in deliverables. And it's something you're already doing, but you need to recognize it so it can do more for you. And that's what I say to everyone in business. Be aware of how you're creating. Be proud of what you're creating. And for sure, write it down. Very good. And Andrew, any parting words? Uh, just echo what Doug has said. It's a discipline. You use ways to document all your other ideas. Start thinking about what really makes your business tick. What makes it different? Why does it meet a pain or gain for your constituent stakeholders and understand how to separate that out and treat it as an asset. It's your most valuable asset. If you don't have that, you don't have a business. Absolutely. Well, the, the big takeaways for me, and I think for all the community of innovators in AEC Hive, is that this is the way to create value and to value ideas and turn those into businesses, as you've said. So I, I really appreciate the time that you've you've given and the the excellent input and uh, as i said we we do look forward to having continued conversations with you in the future so thanks very much